Instead of names and dates, let's focus on the narrative. I'm Adam Blesky. Each month I sit down with a friend to have a real conversation about a part of history that's new to them. The goal is to make connections, to foster curiosity, and to appreciate how incredible the story of humanity truly is. I'm not an expert. This isn't a lecture. This is HI 101. I'm here on HI 101 with Ethan Blesky. Hello. And Phil Downey. Hi there. And uh, we are going to do a bit of a Q&A as a follow-up on the fascism series we've done for the last however many months it's been. It's been a lot of months, guys. Um, I kind of envisioned this as like a nice, chill way to like not quite take a month off in between, but sort of take them. No, no, no. My listeners do not let me get away with that at all. There are some very like strong questions in here. Um, but uh, yeah, 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 of course there is. But yeah, before we started, I just wanted to say there's been some like really positive uh, reactions to the series. I've heard from a lot of listeners. Uh, I've really appreciated hearing from everybody. Um, just to spread some of that gratitude around, I wanted to say thank you to both of you for being on. Ethan, in particular, you've had a complete marathon. You've done the last four months of recording sessions with me, and that is a lot of work, and I really appreciate it. Absolutely. No problem. And Phil, for completely opposite reasons, which is that I thought you had listened to all of the series up until your visit to uh, to, to do the, the episode on the Russian Revolution with me. I was wrong. Nope. So you when were. I... When I asked you on Tuesday, it's it's Saturday today, so questions ended yesterday. I'm going to try and release this tomorrow. So when I asked you on Wednesday to do this show with me, you said, which episode do I need to start on? And you've listened to every episode in the series. Sure did, with about 10 minutes to spare before recording time was due to start. You, wow. You may, in fact, be the most up to speed on this series of the three of us. Like, that is extremely possible at the moment. So, yeah, thanks I for highly doubt that because it was a lot of information to try and uh, absorb all at once. Still, it's at least very, very recent. So anyways, thanks so, for so fresh. Th thanks for putting in all that effort to be here. Uh, you really, really didn't need to do that. But I, I do appreciate it a lot. Um, it's extremely impressive. You told me to take the shortcut and I explicitly declined. I know I'm, I'm not saying that, you know, this, this is, this is on you. Any, any, any detriment that comes from that <laughs> is explicitly your fault. We all know yep. this. It's fine. But no, I just want yep. to put that out. People should know that it's an impressive feat. Um, so yeah, I, I put out questions, uh, a bunch of people responded, apologies if I don't get to a question. Uh, some people put in multiple questions. Sorry if I picked one out of two or three or four as the case may be, but, uh, I just tried to pick kind of the most representative ones and, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll go from there. So we'll start with one from 
Dylan, who asks, uh, how do you feel the Russian Revolution fits into the series on fascism? The other episodes are pretty clear on their relation, though I'm unsure of this one's place in the arc, other than perhaps an example of a nation that didn't devolve into fascism uh, and or setting the stage for the geopolitical climate of Europe at the time. So yeah, that's from Dylan. This was like, you know, don't take this the wrong way, Dylan. This is like my greatest fear putting this whole thing together was like having one of the topics not make sense necessarily. So uh, before I actually tackle this, I was wondering if either of you wanted to like give it a go a little bit, how the Russian Revolution fits in with fascism. I mean, there's a lot of fascism that is response to communism. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, like specifically, it's like socialism and communism was were one were two of the the biggest catalysts and enemies of uh, Hitler's attempt to create the fascist party. Mm-hmm. mentioned in the, one of the three episodes on fascism specifically. They're all a blur that, now. Like, yeah, I couldn't tell you which one it was. Sure. Um, you, you mentioned something to the effect of Hitler, like taking advantage of the fact that they are, enemies and mm-hmm. playing them off of each other and into his own fervor whipping. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think what's really important about the Russian revolution in particular is to have that sort of, uh, enemy on the left for fascism to play off of. Um, you know, we, we talked a little bit about how prior to the Russian revolution, a lot of the socialism movements that were happening in Europe were sort of more like labor-based, you know, union-based, things like that, uh, and pushing for sort of incremental change for workers' rights. What happens with the Russian Revolution is there's this massive uh, self-identified left-wing upheaval in Europe that can be pointed to as like, it's not hard to make a case for it being like pretty bad, right? Like it, it made things pretty bad in Europe, or at least very like tumultuous. And it was also for people in power, like very, very worrisome, right? Like they didn't want to be next on the Bolsheviks hit list. And so um, what what it gives uh, the fascist movement is this like boogeyman to point to as like, well, this is what could happen if you don't let us fight communists, basically. So yeah, without without the Russian Revolution being in place, and without specifically the Bolsheviks being in the leadership of the Russian Revolution, you don't have that strong sort of launch pad for reaction out of the fascists uh, in the 20s and 30s. You know, if the, um, you know, if the SRs or somebody like that, like the, the more moderate socialists had come to power uh, in the February Revolution and held on to it, I don't think you would have seen quite the same sort of um, vilification. Um, absolutely, they would still try it, but it wouldn't be quite as effective. So yeah, that's, that's in a nutshell, that's the reason that the Russian Revolution is so important there. The next one, I'm, by the way, I'm just using whatever name everybody's given me. So, um, yeah, whether it's from like Reddit and it's a Reddit handle or, or whatever, I'm just going with like a first name or whatever people will give me. So, uh, the next question is Holocaust episode when, and that's from Shaggy. Um, probably, probably no, probably not. And the reason for that is, I, I shouldn't say never, but like I don't, I don't see a really good uh, angle to approach it from. Um, Ethan, I, I remember you and I had a conversation uh, this past summer when talking about this uh, this topic. In terms of like, one thing I was kind of interested in, in at that point in time was like 
the personal viewpoints of some of the like top Nazi officials when it came to um, positions of anti-Semitism. And that's something that I never really got back around to the way I might have been interested in. Um, but, right, yeah. but the thing that I posted or the thing that I posited to you at that point was essentially like, does it, you know, like, w- w- were there Nazi officials that were sort of um, cynical about their anti-Semitic positions rather than like genuinely believed in it? And do you remember what you said to me? Yeah. Uh, does it matter? Yeah. And my my response to that was like, well, it depends on what you're talking about, right? Like if you're talking about fascism, then yes, it matters because I think it's important to look at motivating ideologies and motivating factors like this idea of leaders who this idea of leaders who like might not actually believe a thing but they're putting it out there for the populace is a function of like a like an actual mass movement which is what's so new about uh uh, fascism right and what you were getting at was essentially like well a genocide's a genocide like who cares what people are are motivated by people are still dead right right uh it's it's hard to it's hard to talk about ideology when something that large eclipses it you know yeah absolutely completely agree so so i think um what what i'm getting at with with this conversation here is that like we've now talked about that like ideology part right like we've talked about that motivation part um we've we've exhausted it i would argue at this point and i sort of feel like all that's really left to talk about um you know on a a macro scale at least with the with the holocaust is to kind of get into like the 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 details of it in sort of a like a like a misery porn kind of way and like what i don't want to do with the holocaust is to sit here for two hours and talk about a bunch of terrible things that happened without any like any other reason for doing it than to list off a bunch of horrible, horrible facts. Um, one, of the, one of the things you talk about with the show is like, like right off the top, you say it's not just a list of names and dates. Right. Mm-hmm. So I, I feel like tackling the Holocaust like that, that's all it would be. Where's the discussion there? Yeah. And, and I think that's the reason that I'm sort of uh, very, very hesitant to, uh, kind of dive into that. I, it, that and the fact that, as I mentioned in, in part three, three of fascism, I feel like a lot of people have done a really good job of, of uh, approaching this subject with a lot more uh, sensitivity and with a lot more connection and background uh, than I necessarily have. And I'm not sure how much I would necessarily be adding to that conversation, right? I at least sort of attempt to add to conversations that we have on this show. And I, I don't know that I have anything to add to this one necessarily. Um, yeah, yeah. 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 So that's, that's why I'm, I'm extremely hesitant to say that I would ever do that. I, I'm not going to say never because I, I might come up with something down the road, but I don't really see it happening anytime soon. Um, especially kind of coming off of uh, this series. I'm, I'm ready to take a break for a little while. Joel asks, do you think Caesar's behavior in his rise to power could be described as fascist? What do you guys think? Gosh, it's been a minute. Uh, over the summer, I re-listened to some of the episodes on Caesar. Um, was there was there much of an outgroup in Caesar's ploys? No. Then no. <laughs> yeah, I, I completely agree with you. No, it's not fascist. I, I don't think that you can talk about fascism in the roman system it just doesn't really like it doesn't it doesn't really make sense 
uh, at all? I, I don't know. It's, it's, um, you know, there's no mass politics. There's no political parties. Uh, there's no socialism to react against. There's no in-group, out-group stuff that's happening. Like, if anything, uh, Caesar was a was an attempt at restoring uh, a monarchy and hadn't gotten as far as actually calling himself a king, uh, in my opinion, at the time that he was killed. Um, I, I don't think that using the language of a very, very modern phenomenon um, is really useful in discussing Julius Caesar. Now, that being said, he's somebody who fascists would admire, uh, you know, 2000 years later, but that's not the same as being fascist himself. And that's something that we talked about pretty extensively, right? Like this idea that just because something looks like it points towards fascism, doesn't make it in and of itself fascism because fascism co-opts so much of that symbolism um, it's just not tenable to, to draw lines like that. Um, I've got another one from, uh, Dylan, which was, would there have been any recourse to solve Mussolini's siege on Rome that didn't devolve into a fascist takeover or a civil war? Could the government of Italy have fixed their fascist problem or was Italy already past the tipping point? So this is a type of question that I get most times I do a Q&A and I, I usually spend longer on talking about uh, this type of question than I mean to, but this is counterfactual history, right? Like this is this idea of like, well, if we change variables, would we get a different outcome? And Old speculative history. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's, it's good for kind of stretching your uh your mind and 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 kind of uh being critical about cause and effect in history but like ultimately it's really really difficult because you know the question here is like okay well are we talking about at the moment where 30,000 uh, fascists are camped around the city of Rome are we talking about a year before are we talking about two years before like it one you really need to be careful about where you um, set your parameters for this kind of thing. It's interesting because it it reminds me of some of the conversations uh, I've wanted to have with you, Adam, and mm -hmm. some that we actually have had in an effort to put some realism in the worlds that I write when it comes to Dungeons and Dragons mm -hmm. uh, campaigns or or specifically my amateur writing. Mm -hmm. um, and it's useful there mm -hmm. because we can, we can sort of like ask a question like that and then come up with maybe a compelling story to tell, mm -hmm. but just on its own in terms of like a, it, what would have happened if there's, mm -hmm. there's not so much uh, value there outside from the, the possible philosophy and um, you know, political theory that comes from it. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I, I really it's enjoy... It's like a predictive tool more than anything, right? It's, it's, not a, it's not a history thing. It's, a, it's almost a, a, an exercise in um, figuring out internal logic, right? It's, it's seeing what comes next, but it's not what happened. Yeah, yeah. Which I... is, again, enjoyable, but maybe not what 
Adam's trying to do on this show. Well, and it has a place in history. Yeah, exactly. don't, get, don't get me wrong. Like it has a place in history. It's not, it's not as though we never do it. It's more just like, you need to understand when you're doing it, what its limitations are essentially. Um, it's, it's good for identifying what sort of things like it's, it's a good exercise, right? Like it's a good study in, in identifying like which things are, um, you know, which things are very solid in the timeline and which things are like very, uh, shaky. So like, for example, with, you know, not another word done, uh, messing around with, uh, or, or kind of taking shots at speculative history. Um, like in, in this, in this specific context, you know, the, the prime minister, remember the prime minister, uh, Luigi Facta had a state of siege bill drawn up for the city of Rome. And if it had been signed, he would have had the authority to uh, turn the Italian army on the fascists. And at the last moment, Victor Emmanuel III said no and refused to sign it because he was worried about a civil war. So that's where we get into the, like the speculative stuff, right? So at that moment, like could, could, could Italy have solved its fascism problem? Maybe. I don't know what that battle necessarily would have looked like. I, I don't know enough about like the state of the Italian army to say like, yeah, they could have had uh, 80,000 troops ready to go within a day or something like that. I also don't know the like how well prepared the fascists were for battle. On one hand, you know, when you're not a professional army, usually that doesn't go that well. On the other hand, a lot of the fascists, remember, were former World War One soldiers and had seen combat, which puts them a little over like the usual mob in the situation, right? So, you know, it's it's kind of a dicey thing, right? If you go back further, like in scope, uh, would, you know, would things have gone better if local authorities had uh, actually stopped fascists from taking over, you know, local police forces and things like that? Probably, yeah. That would probably have been a much better time to to prevent this this takeover, right? And as far as like going forward in terms of preventing a civil war, even if the fascists had been beaten back, remember that Italy was in like a massive crisis at the time, right? The uh, the ruling socialists were driving the economy into the dirt um, based on essentially their theory not matching up with the reality of the economy and them choosing theory over practicality. So, you know, they were, they were torching the, uh, it, basically the entire farm economy, um, which, you know, people need to eat. Uh, that's a bad thing. And unless you can get that under control, then there's going to continue to be pushback against the left and probably further violence and agitation. Um, so there's a lot of different factors here. Um, could Italy have solved this? Well, the further back in time you go, the more likely it is, number one. And the second thing is, I, I tried to stress this a bunch throughout the, the series, you know, fascists are most successful when traditional conservatives start collaborating with them against the left. And that's the decision, like that's the turning point decision, right? And it's true. The alternative might have been civil war. It might have been very bad. We could have been looking at like a Spain uh, sort of situation there. But we really don't know um, because they decided not to do anything about it to uh, accept Mussolini into the, uh, the, the established government. This next question, it's not about fascism, but I kind of wanted to address it anyways. Um, and it's not necessarily one question, but more that I've gotten this question, I'm going to say five or six times over the last six months or so, 
which for me is a lot. I don't get a lot of emails, guys. Um, and I don't get a lot of requests. I've probably gotten a request to do an episode on specifically Rhodesia uh, about six times in the past six months. I want to be I want to be careful about how I uh, address uh, whether or not I'm going to do a Rhodesia episode. Um, but the the short answer is probably not. Rhodesia was today. It's known as Zimbabwe. Uh, it was founded by. Well, it was it was an offshoot of South Africa, right? We would have talked about that in the colonial South Africa episodes. Um, it was named after Cecil Rhodes, founder of De Beers Diamonds, uh, noted white supremacist. And in 1965, it declared independence from Britain. The reason it declared independence then was that um, Britain was in a bit of a weird spot with their overseas colonies. They had a policy of not allowing independence of any overseas colonies until there was a British majority population, which Rhodesia did not have. But the uh, the white colonists in Rhodesia, uh, they were worried that Britain was just going to dissolve it as a colony altogether. And while still a minority of the population, established a essentially apartheid government, white minority rule, uh, excluding uh, black voters for the most part, um, and declared independence. There's a big civil war that follows, uh, a massive international embargo. Uh, in 1978, the government's forced to surrender. It becomes Zimbabwe. There's been a resurgence in the last decade or so. It's been it's been going on for a while, but especially in the last decade or so, of people pointing to Zimbabwe and specifically its struggles uh, under Robert Mugabe as evidence of essentially the superiority of a white-ruled colony in Africa. And I um, I don't I don't want to make any specific or, or I don't want to say anything specifically about the people who are asking because I don't generally get more than like a line or two as a request. Um, but I am not interested in supporting that uh, narrative about uh, Rhodesia. It's kind of a gross thing, in my opinion. If you're looking to uh, learn a little bit more about what Rhodesia was exactly like, I don't think there's two hours worth of material there. I might talk about the decolonization. It's a terrible name for it, but uh, it's what we work with uh, of Africa in the 50s and 60s at some point, of which I'm sure Rhodesia will play a part. But yeah, I just uh, wanted to put that out there. Um, as I said, I've gotten a bunch of requests for it, and I'm not really that kind of show. So I uh, just wanted to make sure that that's uh, clear to everybody. Uh, moving on. Next question says, you placed a lot of emphasis on the need for fascist parties to maintain the perception of momentum, otherwise they would lose the support of the population. My question is, why does this apply specifically to fascist dictatorships? Why don't we see the same pressure on other dictatorships around the world, for example, North Korea? And that's from Isaac. That's a good question. That is a good question, yeah. Yeah, I don't have an answer for that off the top of my head. Yeah, um, I, I would say that uh, there's a couple of things that that comes down to, but the main one is this idea of like legitimacy of power, right? Um, the thing about a military dictatorship uh, or a more traditional dictatorship, whatever you want to call it, authoritarian dictatorship, the, the, the thing that usually happens in that situation is that like you don't really have to worry about the legitimacy of your power um, because you've established it through uh, force against your own people. 
Um, so in a regime like North Korea, for example, there's nothing that the government necessarily needs to give to its people in order to maintain their legitimacy of power. Their legitimacy of power has nothing to do with uh, promises made to the people. When you look at fascists, they've made very specific promises to the populace because their power derives from uh, the mass population. No matter what they do to restrict rights uh, as they gain further power, at some point there is both practically through whatever you know um, government uh, mechanisms that exist in that society and sort of symbolically through their like purported representation of like the the folk right like the 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 mythical people of that nation the government owes those people something they've claimed to know better how to lead those people to greatness right and they're relying on very like social darwinist tropes to do that right it's this idea of like the nation as a an organism right like that's that's kind of the easiest way to to think about all of this stuff they want to make the nation as as a um, allegorical organism stronger, uh, larger, uh, more dominant. And so then you get into stuff like, well, um, the economy's struggling in Germany, so they have to go out and push harder to make everyone wealthy, right? Um, there are, you know, again, allegorical like infections. There are outsiders in the uh, in the in the body of the folk. Uh, we need to get rid of them. And there's this promise by the leadership of like we are going to become like the top of the heap, right? There's a lot of like racial superiority stuff baked into it. Now, when you have a dictatorship like North Korea or even like uh, Spain with, again, this is one of those reasons that we didn't cover Spain as fascist, you get to a point where it's like, well, I've got control now and actually going to war with anybody would probably be really bad for my control. Then I can just basically tell people, well, I'm protecting you by not going to war, but don't worry, I got your back. And then just never engage on, a, on an international scale. And it's not going to affect your legitimacy of power. For a fascist to stop engaging with the outside world, it actually undercuts their own message about the source of their power, which is conflict with other nations through social Darwinism. So because there's still vestiges of uh, popular support there, even when they have like very total control over the population, that's going to start eating away at their legitimacy. It's a risk to their hold on power. Does that kind of track? Does that make sense to you guys? Yeah, I think so. I, yeah, I think, absolutely. I, th I think the idea that came to mind uh, is that, you know, were fascism allowed to continue, it could very much end up being more totalitarian looking. Mm -hmm. um, just in, they amass enough power and then they just say, okay, we're just doing it my way and mm -hmm. you about how we, how, how I do it. You're doing it because I said I we're doing it. Sure. Um, which is, you know, maybe more akin to North Korea's approach, which is just that they will kill anyone who says no. Mm -hmm. uh, and they don't really have any sort of pretense about it. You, there, there's definitely a, a path of transition, I could imagine, sure. from um, fascism to something more totalitarian. But that's you're leaving fascism behind then at that point. It's more of a how we got here as opposed to where we are. Yeah. A stepping stone. Yeah. And, and I think there's, I, I think exactly. there's, 
also, can I just say, I, I you mentioned some of the social Darwinism ideology in there. Mm-hmm. That episode was really hard to listen to. Yeah. <laughs> that, that, yeah. That, that eugenics episode, it hurt my humanity. Yeah, it's rough stuff. Uh, you and I had a conversation a little bit after after you listened to it. It's 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 hard. It's it's hard yeah. because you can kind of see, and I, this is what I was saying to you. I, I, you can kind of see where um, a a persuasive argument can be made for some of this on on sort of an abstract scale. Like you can see how it takes hold of people a little bit, and that makes it extra scary. I think. Like, yeah, it's, it's so, it's so probable and so insidious Yeah, that it's going to become a thing to talk about again. And it's like, you, you just have to remember that where this line of thinking is going is genocide, mm-hmm. <laughs> multiple genocides possibly. And like, yo, maybe let's not do that. <laughs> what if we didn't? It is, it is a, it is an option that we could consider here. Yeah, for sure. No, it's, it's, it's rough stuff. And, and I think that, you know, just circling back a little bit to what we were talking about in terms of a a fascist state settling into another mode, I I think that another thing that's been hanging over this whole series is that like, it's, we, we only have a handful of good examples of fascism moving beyond sort of that baseline stage, right? Like that sort of unorganized hum of ultranationalism that exists in most Western democracies uh, at virtually all times. You know, we're, we're pointing to two pretty, or the two big examples throughout this series. We don't know what happens when they exist for more than 20 years. We don't know what happens when uh, there are no longer significant challenges to them. You know, I'm okay with that. I'm, I'm, I'm good with not knowing. Certainly. No, absolutely. Let's, let's, Some mysteries are yeah, good. Let's yeah. leave that question unanswered, please. <laughs> but my point being, we, we, you're absolutely right. We also have no idea what happens when uh, they move out of that phase because the struggle is so much a part of the fascism, right? Like it is, it is baked into yeah. the ideology that you are struggling. We don't know what a successful, wealthy, satisfied fascist, fascist nation looks like, because I don't know if it's possible for fascism to be saved. Let's hope it's just not possible. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a bit of a paradox, but like, again, we, we don't know if that's, uh, we don't know if there's a different phase of fascism that it settles into. We don't know if it becomes something else. We don't know if it just consumes forever. We, we don't know. Um, so, so speculation beyond that point is, is really, really difficult and something that uh, political scientists have been talking about uh, quite a bit over the 20th century. But still, we don't really know the answer to that question. So it's, it's very hard to say. Dictatorships, on the other hand, they, are, they have existed forever. We kind of have a pretty good idea of how they work. Um, fascism just happens to be a little bit a different animal. So, yeah. Um, why don't we take a quick break there and we'll have more questions when we come back. Back on HI 101 here with Ethan Blesky and Phil Downey. Hello. Hi, hi. And yeah, let's get back into the questions. This is going well so far. Um, Tyler asks, give us the cues. We'll give you the A's. <laughs> <laughs> Great. 
<laughs> Sounds good. Uh, Tyler asks, for your Q&A, I was wondering if you could touch on the significance of Hannah Arendt, her books Eichmann in Jerusalem and the Origins of Totalitarianism. Because it's a history podcast and not a philosophy podcast, I suppose I would ask how her interpretations shape how we view uh, this new ideology and how her views were received at the time. Again, that's from Tyler. I didn't talk about Hannah Arendt at all because, to be honest with you guys, I have not read anything by Hannah Arendt in, oh, at least a decade. Just to give you a bit of background, she was uh, she was born in Germany early in the 20th century, and, and she, was, uh, she was Jewish. And so uh, she escaped to the United States after a number of run-ins with the the Nazis. Uh, I believe she left in 1941 uh, and, and lived in New York for the rest of her life. And her writings, she, she wrote a lot, but her writings tended to focus on, for very obvious reasons, uh, fascism uh, and Nazism, um, but also the Cold War. And all of this is through the lens of being a Jewish German woman in the shadow of the Cold War and in the in the shadow of the founding of Israel and a lot of very complicated things that are happening in the 50s. So her work is it's tricky, right? Because with history things tend to go in a little bit of a cycle uh, after they happen and every 20 to 30 years, the general zeitgeist shifts and you see a complete reinterpretation of most historical events, right? New schools of thought come up, new ways of approaching history come up and, and things just sort of shift a little bit, right? So Arendt's work is uh, important at the time that it's written for basically two reasons. It's the two um, works that Tyler mentions here, um, 1951's Origins of Totalitarianism and 1963's Eichmann in Jerusalem. So Origins of Totalitarianism is uh, political philosophy, essentially. And in it, she basically posits common roots for Nazism and Stalinism. So this is one of the sources of what we call, we would call horseshoe theory. Um, not that she called it that at the time, but this idea that um, the more extreme you become in either direction, the more similar the systems become. I loved the section that you did on this and talking about how horseshoe theory was sort of inadequate and that you needed at least three dimensions to sort of plot these things around mm -hmm. in, a, yeah. in any way that makes sense. That was... I've been thinking about that a lot uh, recently. I've been doing a lot of political philosophy uh, in my spare time mm -hmm. with some friends. It's just, you know, a habit of uh, being on a show like this. Sure. Uh, sometimes you tend to wax philosophical. Sure. And we sort of came to a similar idea, but didn't quite express it so explicitly yeah. as the, the method you described. Um, even the, then the, I wasn't the various axes. even then I wasn't like super happy with the way that that came out. I, I felt kind of clunky listening back. Yeah. It's, like, it's hard to do, but like it's, 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 it's essentially you, you go, uh, um, one way is democratic versus authoritarian. One way is economically collective or individualist. And one way is, uh, nationalist versus inter internationalist. Um, yeah. or, or the other way you can talk about it is, is, and this only works really in the 20th century context, but, uh, class-based versus nation-based. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and right. that, yeah. And that's the easiest way to make this stuff work in a way that actually differentiates them in a meaningful way. Um, the, the way to understand uh, Arendt's work on this is, again, as a Jewish woman seeing the things that Stalin's USSR is doing to the world in general, but also the Jewish people, and then also seeing the things that the Hitler's Nazis do to, again, the world in general, but also the Jews in particular, and seeing a lot of very similar things happen. She kind of managed to tick everyone off with this work because one of the things that she mentions is that like the the root of the Holocaust isn't necessarily in Jewishness, that that's kind of ancillary to the totalitarian government's need for control and that like the violence and the othering is part of that need for control and that the fact that they turned that against Jewish people is more to do with like convenience than necessarily their Jewishness. And hundred percent. I I agree with that. (laughs) Yeah, I would agree with that too. But like with the, the caveat that like you, you, the, the, the convenience of them as a target, like we talked about fairly extensively, has is deeply rooted in historical persecution, right? And so it's sort of like a we got a chicken and egg sort of scenario going on there. But when this comes out in the fifties, the way that the Holocaust is being talked about, and you know, in the in again um, right after the founding of of Israel and all of this there is a lot of exceptionalism in the way that the genocide is talked about. And that concerns a lot of people, even though today uh, we, we have a little bit more charitable understanding of what she's trying to say there. Um, again, I'm, I'm going off of like summaries of all this stuff. I haven't read it in a very long time. Then the other, the other work is the uh, uh, 1963's Eichmann in Jerusalem. Adolf Eichmann was a leader of the Einsatzgruppen, which was uh, the branch of the SS uh, responsible for uh, the death squads. And he was extradited to uh, Israel and faced trial there. Um, there's a couple of things that uh, come out of this work. One of them is the, uh, the phrase banality of evil. I'm sure it's a phrase mm-hmm. that you guys have heard before. Uh, I was literally just thinking about that when you casually said the word death squad. Yeah. And I was just like, I, I hate that that is just a thing that you can say in conversation. And apparently we're not blinking at that anymore. Mm-hmm. We're just, yeah, death squads happened. Mm-hmm. Don't, don't think about yeah. it too hard. Yeah. A, a lot of, a lot of this work is about her own personal reaction to seeing part of the trial and finding Eichmann really boring and bureaucratic and a lot of his defenses having to do with following orders and a lot of the like very cliched things that, that you would associate with a Nazi trial, right? And kind of reflecting on the way that the mystique of, of Nazism had already started to become sort of like mythically evil and pushing back against that to say like no this guy's a bureaucrat like he's he doesn't even according to her uh uh sort of assessment of him doesn't even seem like all that uh anti-semitic 
just mm. seems like kind of a guy who has always been a follower and a uh, like both in terms of like other people, but like a rule follower, um, just trying to do the job that he's given to the best of his ability. Not that she's excusing anything with all of this, but sure. she's trying to point out that like there is nothing um, he, he doesn't he doesn't have like hidden devil horns or anything. Yeah, it's sort of the idea that like it doesn't take someone being exceptionally evil in any way to do great evil harmful things. Yeah. You don't need that twirly cartoon mustache. Yeah, and it's you, this you like can just be a guy in an office signing off on the death of, you know, mm-hmm. millions. Yeah, and it's this like cumulative effect of that small evil that that everyday evil that kind of adds up in in ways that are beyond like maybe your own individual conception of it but on like an existential level become like you know overwhelming um this book also created some controversy when it came out in terms of like oh oh, there's there's lots of well yeah i mean the the reasons you're imagining but also you know again arendt was a was a complicated woman uh she had some things to say about um the lack of organization on the part of jewish people and it kind of came off as a little victim blamey and like Mm. she seems to have some things against uh eastern european jews as a western european jew and like there's and again i'm not familiar enough to really get into the weeds on all this stuff but like this this work was important i think in the rejection of that like recoil and horror reaction to the end of world war ii um it was important in the uh modern kind of conception of the potential for institutional evil that that uh, could exist in sort of any uh circumstance and that uh you know that that um following orders isn't necessarily uh reasonable defense that had already been established at nuremberg but um she's also writing philosophy here as well as uh journalism there's also things that she discusses in here like for example um the legitimacy of the trial itself eichmann had essentially been kidnapped and brought to israel to be tried for crimes that took place uh outside of israel before israel existed and were legal when they happened she's just trying to wrap her head around these ideas um a lot of people i I can i can imagine people don't want to think about that and just want to kill the bad guy Mm -hmm. yeah essentially so um what you know going back to uh tyler's question you know what what impact does it have i mean there, there are a couple of key ideas that i think still persist there are also a couple of key ideas that she put forward that have uh we've definitely moved past. And that's the reason I wouldn't necessarily recommend reading someone like Arendt unless you're specifically curious about it. There's been a lot of work done since she wrote all of this and her good ideas have stuck around um, or even been improved and the bad ideas have been kind of shuffled off. I I wouldn't necessarily go to her as a primary source at this point. But, you know, it, it did have a big impact on how we think about institutional evil. It did have a big impact on... Um, the ideas about following orders, you know, like this is not necessarily directly from her, but she is a, a, uh, uh, 
an influence on things like uh, the Milgram experiment, right? In, in psychology, the, the push the button when the guy in the lab t- coat tells you to, Oof. even though the subject says that yeah. it hurts. Or the uh, Stanford prison experiment, for example, which, you know... Mm-hmm. What was the what was the onion headline? Something about uh, studies found uh, all all psychology uh, studies taking place in the sixties and seventies are uh, are just torture or something like that. Um, yeah, there are bad studies, yeah. but people. But what people were trying to get to the root of were why do normal people do evil things? And it's a reaction to her putting forward that idea in the first place, right? Yeah. Um, her and others. But uh, yeah, extremely influential in the 60s and 70s, um, has been synthesized since then in, in history in general. The next question is, your discussion on Franco's Spain has me curious as to where you would consider Imperial Japan to, follow, to fall on the fascism spectrum, given their position as an ally of fascist countries throughout World War II and prior, as well as other factors, for example, but not limited to systemic atrocities, a living space-esque foreign policy of territorial expansion based in ethnic and national supremacism, and so on. That's from Sebastian. Really good question. I yeah, kind of really expected good. I kind of expected this one to come up because yes, I did not talk about Japan at all in the fascism episodes. That is mainly because I had already bitten off so much uh, with the uh, with Italy and, and Germany. That was already enough. Um, uh, I draw the line somewhere. But the other reason is that there's no good answer to this question. Like I don't have like a yes or no for Sebastian. It is still very much debated. And I think, well, I'll give you the takeaway first and then we can get into the details a little bit more. I think what we need to really recognize when it comes to ultranationalist movements is that there is no one template for how to do ultranationalism. Yeah, you even mentioned that with fascism uh, mm-hmm. in the episodes, that it's, it's custom, it's tailor-made to the environment where it is thriving. Yeah. It's an aesthetic. It is an aesthetic, exactly. Yeah. That's what that's <laughs> yeah. what we were getting at with the, with the aesthetic. It's that every place that a fascist movement could come up, or or even if we want to broaden it, um, a, a nationalist movement comes up. It's going to have its own language. You can't talk about the same things. You can't put forward the same symbols in multiple places around the world because what it's trying to do is get back at like a primordial history, like a, a history that's bigger than fact. Um, is kind of the goal of a fascist movement, right? And you can't do that and then just transplant it whole cloth to somewhere else because all of a sudden you're talking a completely different language and people don't understand what you're getting at. It's a it's a language of like suggestion, literal and figurative language. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's it's so suggestive, right? Like there's a lot of like uh, to use a very modern term, there's there's a lot of dog whistling going on. Um, Mm -hmm. there's a lot of saying things without actually coming out and saying them. Um, a lot of times you have fascist leaders who are saying different things to different groups and saying things in ways that, um, you know, one group can write off as being, oh, that's just hyperbole or that's just, you know, symbolism. And other groups are saying like, that was a literal thing that was just said and doing it in a way that you can, you can say that either side is right. So to get back to Japan in particular, yeah, I mean, the the trouble I think is that when you look at the topics that we did leading up to fascism, we were talking about very much turn of the century, fin de siècle, Europe. And there is a lot going on in Europe 
in the 18th and 19th centuries leading up that is very specific to Europe that doesn't necessarily have exactly one-to-one counterparts in Japan. Japan is a very, very different country. And to be honest, I only know enough about its history to know how poorly I know its history. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not I'm not a complete amateur, so I'm not like, oh, yeah, this should be easy. Um, I'm at that weird spot where you just know enough where you're like, oh, no, 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 this is the, I, I got nothing here at all. I don't know what I'm talking about. So Too big for me. Yeah. So, I mean, there are arguments against it being fascism. There's no real internal enemy narrative that's going on, as far as I know, in the 30s. Um, you don't have that like we're being subverted from within thing going on. Um, there is no mass party really. I mean, there is, um, like there's a parliament in, in Japan, but like the, the function of democracy is very, very different at that point in time. Uh, it's still very traditional. Um, you don't have a charismatic political leader. There just isn't one. It's, it's completely, uh, lacking in the, in the statism movement in Japan. There's the emperor, but like the emperor is the polar opposite of a charismatic leader. Um, people don't see the emperor, people don't hear the emperor because he's considered divine. Uh, so normal people don't get to access him in any way. Um, so you don't have like, you know, Hitler on the balcony, you know, speaking to thousands of people. Actually, I don't know if you guys have heard this, but like there's a, there's a very famous story that like the first time most Japanese citizens hear the emperor's voice is at the surrender at the end of the war. He's forced to give a radio announcement telling everyone that the war, uh, that, that they've surrendered the war. And he is so removed from Japanese society that like he's using an old, like formal style of Japanese that a lot of people have a really hard time understanding. Like it's the opposite of a populist movement, right? Like it's not connecting with the people. It's, it's a, it's a very removed, very symbolic relationship. What else? We have no structure, uh, or we have no restructuring of any state apparatus under Japanese statism. Um, there isn't, I mean, there is actually a fascist movement that exists in Japan and it's extremely unpopular. Like it doesn't catch on at all. This is a, a completely different thing that happens. Um, there's no seizure of power movement, which is really important to both Italian and German fascism, right? Like that narrative of uh, the March on Rome, right? It doesn't matter that it didn't actually give them the power, right? It's this mythical thing where they can point to a moment where they stepped up for the Italian people. That doesn't exist. Uh, there's no modernist movement. There isn't that whole, like, we need to leave our past behind and forge a new uh, identity moving forward. So there's a lot of stuff about what we would consider fascism, like what we would put on the checklist that's missing here. So I'm, I'm foggy on Japan because, you know, mm -hmm. my brain is full of all the information I just absorbed about Europe mm -hmm. in the last couple of days. Yeah. Um, but they, they had some pretty big uh, victories uh, during World War II. Like, why wouldn't that have been similar enough in idea to um, Italian, the Italians, uh, you know, marching on Rome? Because it's an external enemy, right? Like the 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 whole the whole fascist narrative. Yeah. The whole fascist narrative is that they're seizing the, the country back from a corrupt or a corrupting force within, right? It's this like reassertion of like a correct direction. 
And and that's that's really important to both Germany and to to Italy. Like, you know, the Nazis don't point to, you know, their first victories in, um, you know, Spain or uh, in in uh, Austria as like the moments where they stepped onto the stage. It's the moment when they like take when they take the uh, um, when they take power from Hindenburg and uh step into place it's the um uh it's the reichstag fire right that's their moment of crisis in which they like step up and reassert uh their authority and that's the moment that they point to and it's like that's when we uh that's when things could have gone wrong that was the moment when the socialists tried to attack us and that's when we turn things around and put it in the right direction what uh what specifically was japan's incentive in expansion than just the acquisition of wealth yeah i mean that's a big part of it i think one good way to think of japan when it comes to like their economic uh position or like their their resource position is that they're very similar to britain um they are a very large island off the coast of a um, very resource wealthy continent, but there are certain resources that they don't have natively, um, and they're required to trade for them. So Britain had all the coal, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. What was Japan's? Did Japan have some analog to that? Timber is one of the biggest ones. Yeah. That made so, them interesting. Did anyone even try to attack Japan? <laughs> did anyone try to attack? When? Like. Um, in the, during in the, the World War II. No, I mean, they were the aggressors in, in that theater almost exclusively. No, I, I mean, when you when you look at their expansion, and I mean, this this is what I was going to get to in terms of, like, arguments for, right? Like, yeah, they were extremely expansionistic. They, you know, it's the, yeah. what do they call it? The, the Greater East Asia Co-Prosperity Sphere is what they called the, uh, the territory that they were trying to take over. When you look at what they were trying oh, to cool. take, yeah, when you look at what they were trying to take, you know, it's Manchuria for the, uh, for the iron. It's, uh, you know, the, yeah. um, down into, uh, like, Malaysia for uh, rubber and for oil. Um, like they're trying to, well, they're striving for autarky essentially, which is what all of these, these right wing powers are going for, right? Like the ability to not need outside trade, not to depend on outside trade for a complete economy. So Mm -hmm. they're trying to create a space where they're able to, uh, support their entire economy, their entire population without trade. That's essentially the, the motivating factor there. That being said, like the the other arguments for here is that like the elites in Japan were absolutely influenced by fascist thought from the West. Like they liked these ideas, right? Um, there are ideas of racial purity, of bioessentialism, uh, floating around, using those reasons as justification for expansion. You know, there is some restructuring in Japan uh, economically, but not politically. And I think again, the takeaway here is that like it's about the bespoke nature of nationalist movements. Um, We have two good examples of fascism in Italy and Germany. We have other okay examples in places like uh, Austria, Hungary, uh, Portugal, where you know, there are, there are strong fascist movements that uh, either get taken over or uh, fizzle out, but these are all 
uh, European, right? And a lot of the things that unite them are based on a shared economic status, uh, history, um, philosophical roots. And there's just so much of that stuff that is different for Japan that is really hard to say whether the differences here are that fascism looks that different when it's in that different a place or whether this just isn't fascism at all and we're just calling it the wrong thing. What I would say on it is that when you talk to scholars of fascism, uh, it tends to lean towards no, it wasn't fascism, but they're not generally scholars of like East Asian history. When you talk to Japanese historians or, or you know historians of Japan, there's a lot more mixed opinion on the matter. Um, there, there's a lot more division on whether or not we can consider that fascism. And so I, I think that's probably worth considering here, not taking a, you know, a very specifically European conception of fascism and trying to like plop it onto Japan. That doesn't make any sense. So, you know, maybe this is just that we, we can't call anything outside of European or your Western tradition fascism. And maybe that's just where we land on all of this. I don't know. We, we didn't do this whole series, I don't think, to come to the end and be able to say like, yep, that's fascism. Nope, that's not fascism, like confidently and correctly every single time. It's obviously much messier than that. And I think this is just one of those spots where we're, we're straight to our limits on on the terminology. So all of that being said, that's kind of why I didn't tackle it in a, in a nutshell. There's a whole lot more to, to get into there, but I, I don't. I don't know. I kind of go back and forth depending on who I'm reading. I'm very easily swayed on the on the topic. Yeah, I I don't have a clear opinion given all the facts that you've laid out and my knowledge of both fascism and the history of Japan. Mm-hmm. No, it's a it's a hard one to say yes or no to. Yeah, it really is. The next question is: What is your biggest pet peeve around the depictions of Nazis or fascists in popular media? And that's from Brian. Oh, Indiana Jones. You know what? I was specifically going to bring up Indiana Jones. I I think that it is very easy, whatever you happen to be an expert on in your own life, it's very, very easy to see a movie that includes that thing and just get very, very frustrated. Um, I, I've, yeah, I've, tell, tell me about, or let me tell you about all of the uh, computer hacking scenes and the the programming interfaces and what's wrong with us just anytime there's a computer in a movie <laughs> i just i usually just want to scream i i have worked very hard to try and cultivate some sort of uh switch in my brain that i can turn off and just enjoy movies it doesn't always work but you know what i i i'm kind of okay with the whole indiana jones nazi and to to a certain degree you know, like, I mean, it's just not trying to be that sort of movie at that point. And I can kind of, you know, accept that we're just doing a shorthand for a bad guy. Is it ideal? Maybe not. I don't know. But like, I, I don't know. I also don't want to just be like, no fun about stuff. I think the one thing that actually does uh, bother me if I really have to pick something is when um, media is trying to do this stuff a little bit more seriously. And there tends to be this focus, and, and this brings us back to the last question, actually. There tends to be this focus on, like, modern-day fascists, especially, like, because it's Hollywood, right, usually based in the U.S., um, specifically uh, 
reviving like Nazi symbols or idols, like being like very obsessed with like Hitler or like swastikas or like uh, Norse rune imagery, things like that. Um, I just I don't think that's how that would work, because, again, I don't think that's what American fascism would look like. I don't think those are the symbols that it would embrace like an actual honest to goodness like not not like a neo-nazi skinhead type movement like those guys they'll they'll definitely do all that stuff but like i don't know i i don't see them taking fascists and like molding them to the society in which in which they exist very often and and that that bothers me a little bit uh what about you two uh ethan anything come to mind I was just thinking about what you were saying there, and yeah, I totally agree. Um, mostly because the their success in World War II is such a big part of their own personal history that uh, sort of switching sides to create their fascism it just it doesn't track right mm-hmm. uh, narratively. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they would be incorporating bits and pieces of their own mythology really adamantly you mm-hmm. know? yeah it's that it's that it's that uh, primordial language that we were talking about earlier right like that that you, you need to find something that like speaks to their own identity a little bit better well stars and stripes not swastikas you know essentially yeah like you you need to you need to find something that like usually they'll be like outsiders or something and that's why they've like embraced that ideology or whatever i don't think that that's how that works like that that doesn't that doesn't strike me as necessarily dangerous on like a widespread level. You know what I mean? Um, that that okay, will, yeah. that yeah. will continue to be a, an isolated thing, in my opinion. The other thing too is that like, I, I mean, I, I don't know this for sure for obviously re- obvious reasons, but like, I would assume that like the Nazis are seen as people that like they lost. You know what I mean? Like. They, they were unsuccessful. Yeah, and w- within that narrative, for sure. Yeah, and and fascist imagery doesn't tend to be terribly kind towards losers. You know, it's it's just I, I don't know. Again, like I said, I, I I don't know any of this for sure. But that's something that that's the one thing that always takes me out of it is just the like this isn't this isn't the symbol the symbolism that they'd be uh, interested in. This isn't what would be uh, speaking to them. Uh, Phil, anything come to mind for you? No, not really. Fair enough. Uh, next question. I really enjoyed learning more about this topic. I also uh, I also listened to uh, Behind the Bastards episode. I don't know that podcast. Um, I've heard of it a, f- a number of times before, though. Uh, I listened to an episode on Gabriel Denunzio as the man who invented fascism. Denunzio, by the way, guys, that's the uh, that's the guy who uh, took over the city of Fiume in Yugoslavia. The uh, the Italian guy. And just sort of like yeah. instituted. Okay, you remember all of that? 1925, I believe. I remember that one, yeah. That sounds familiar. Yeah. Denunzio was an enthusiastic drug user, and Hitler's drug use is also well documented. Do you think this correlation is because of increasing recreational drug availability or part of the pressure and dynamics of how fascist states play out? And that's from Jen. Everybody was doing drugs. Like, that's, that's the main answer There's- here. If there's anything that I know about humanity, it's that people really like to get up and the more stressed they are, the more up they want to be. Yeah, that's that's true. Um. <laughs> I mean, 
all of the armies back then were running on amphetamines. That, all of them. That was going to be my next point. Like, yeah, there's there's the uh, there's the development of uh, amphetamines. You know, first discovered in the 1880s, but like in the 1930s, they really started like producing them on a mass level, and they were very much seen as like this miracle drug for uh, troops. You basically didn't have to sleep while you were on them. Now you would crash hard afterwards, but for I don't know, something like a Blitzkrieg movement where you just needed to be up for 30 hours straight and once it's done, it's like, it's over. Um, this was seen as a, well, essentially an enhancement by the the military leaders. And I think there's a bit of a misconception that it's mainly the Nazis who are using uh, amphetamines. No, Allied bomber crews were uh, liberally making use of these as well. Yeah, I, I think... I think that running a world war is probably very stressful. A little bit. And I think that losing a world war is probably slightly more stressful. And uh, yeah, I, I don't think there's anything... Um, that seems to reason. Yeah, I, I don't think there's anything like like uh, inherently uh, fascist about drug use, I suppose, to cope with the, uh, the hardships of, of being a leader you know, despot or not, uh, you know, we talked about how, um, we talked very briefly about how, uh, Mussolini was also very heavily medicated. A lot of that was from being just extraordinarily depressed, especially towards the end of the war. But like, again, Churchill had a massive drinking problem, just like barely functional. Um, there were, there were frequent accounts of him working until 3am just plastered writing out notes that were illegible by the end of it and trying to figure out what exactly he had been planning fdr uh, by all accounts you know the the pearl harbor address the december 7th you know a date which will live in infamy you've probably heard audio from it he was on cocaine while he was doing that speech like it's just everybody was doing it that's yeah and and i think it's Number one, really interesting to think about how uh, drug use might have influenced uh, important events in history. Uh, Dan Carlin had a really good episode way, way back on that. But I, I think also number two, to make sure that like we don't uh, moralize drug use, I suppose, by you know trying to associate it with a particular ideology. I, I think this is just a matter of a very, very... Uh, uh, stressful uh, situation and people trying to uh, trying to cope with it accordingly. Okay, so for our next question, uh, would you be open to repeating the format you used in Fascism Part One, perhaps for topics that had, uh, perhaps for topics that had historical viewpoints that at the time differed from our current understanding, or topics that even now don't have a fully agreed upon narrative, or are co controversial? And that's yeah, that Dylan. That shit. That shit was so cool. I really liked that episode. Good, I'm glad. I was I was worried putting that one out. I wasn't sure how it was going to be received. I was kind of worried at first too. I was like, I, I don't know if I'm going to be able to follow hmm. like the various viewpoints. Mm -hmm. But like, I found myself just like, okay. And then like when you got to the next one, I was like, all right, this is okay. And then you got to the third one, I was like, wow, I hate this, but I get it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that's that's uh, pretty accurate to how I was feeling at the time too. <laughs> yeah. Like yeah. everything you made sense, it was internally consistent. I was just like, I I don't like it. <laughs> yeah, that's that's entirely fair. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I suppose this the, the short answer to that is 
yes, but I mean, the, the trouble with actually executing something like that in the future is that like it really needs to be the right topic, right? Like you can't just do that with just anything. And I, I think a big portion of that is, you know, some of the stuff that we talked about, which is politics as as we think about politics was essentially invented 250 years ago, more or less. And before that, the idea of like having a political school of thought or something like that is not really a thing at all. And then anything newer than what we talked about is kind of getting into like pretty recent events and like a very like settled political landscape, like to the point where we we can talk about the difference between like the political parties that existed 50 years ago and the ones that exist now, but they all have the same names and a lot of them have very similar positions. So eh, it, it gets, it gets tricky that way. There's also the point that when you do that, you cut in third, the amounts of history you can cover in the same amount of time. Mm. And because you knew you were doing three parts on fascism, then you can, you can say, okay, this is the segment that I really want, a segment of time that I really want to explore this way. Mm-hmm. And then use the other time in the other two episodes to keep going on fascism without compromising on either side. Yeah. Well, I think the other thing, too, that, that I, I'd like to point out about Fascism 1 is that the topic wasn't the time between the French Revolution and the First World War, right? Like, that's really important to understand about what I was doing there. The topic was the viewpoints, not that time. Yeah. Yeah. What we talked about in there was, you know, there was like 5 or 10% new information in there. The rest of it was, like, the whole point of it was to talk about something that people were going to be more or less familiar with, or at least, like, anchored in, so that when I present things in a specific way that you already have enough of an understanding that you can go like, oh, okay, I see what's going on here, right? It's about the viewpoint. It's not about the action that we're talking about. Um, th- like, does, does that more or less make sense? So yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So to do something like this again, it's not about like finding the right topic. Like, I mean, it, it is, but like, it's about finding a set of viewpoints that I want to present in tandem the same way that would actually, that I think would actually benefit from that treatment. So it makes sense to me. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, sure. If the right things, thing comes along, I I think it went well. Anybody that said anything to me about it was, was positive. I think it was well received. So I I don't, I don't see an issue with it, but again, it's, it's just, it's tricky to find uh, the right, the, the right subject for that. Next question, Uh, I think it would be interesting to hear you discuss the differences in German and Italian fascism's stance on religion. And that's from Shaggy again. This will be the the briefest of brief summaries, because this is a really fascinating uh, topic, and it's something I I find really interesting. I've actually got uh, a book on order with the local bookstore on like specifically uh, Christianity and Nazi Germany that I'm very much looking forward to looking into. But uh, yeah, it's it's an interesting thing, right? Because I'm I'm actually I'm actually reminded of a, a it's the very first online course I ever did, 
in university and I was in, I think I was in third year or something and it was a, a first year course just to like get a credit. Right. And I still remember to this day, a discussion topic, which was like basically asking what the political, uh, political ramifications were of the, um, Protestant reformation and bless their heart. Some little 17 year old was like, there were no, there's nothing political about the reformation. It's an entirely spiritual thing. And it's like, oh no, you have so much to learn. <laughs> uh huh. My the point I'm I'm getting at with this is like, yeah, there's there's there are nationalist undertones to certain uh, denominations of Christianity, and when when you're talking specifically about Germany and Italy, you are talking about Protestantism and Catholicism. That's just that's all there is to it. And yes, there is a significant uh, Catholic. Um, population in Germany, they're about, you know, one third Catholic to two thirds Protestant in Germany. And um, the the Catholics are, are treated as a minority. Um, it's just another outgroup to hate and or mm -hmm. worse. Yeah. And, and what's more, they're seen when, through a nationalist lens, they're seen as not entirely committed, right? Because they have some sort of allegiance to the Pope who is foreign. Um, this is the same issue that you'll see with, uh, you know, JFK as the first Catholic president. It's like, yeah. well, is he actually, you know, can we trust him? Like, what if the Pope tells him to do whatever? Like, it never happens, whatever. But, you know, there, there was that concern, right? Um, so, Italian fascism obviously is closely intertwined with the Catholic Church. We talked about, uh, you know, normalizing relations with the Vatican and all of that, how uh, Mussolini had to smooth over his feelings towards the Catholic Church, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, when it comes to Germany, it's a little bit more diverse, their, their uh, approach to religion. Um, for one thing, there's what's known as the German faith movement, uh, led by a guy named Jakob uh, Wilhelm Hauer, who attempts to revive Germanic paganism, which is really interesting, through the lens of Nazi ideals, which is very worrisome. But this this is where you see some of that like throwback to like Norse runes and stuff like that. Um, it's just done through like a very like racial supremacist kind of lens there's going to be somewhere in the neighborhood of 200,000 adherents to this uh to this movement um which isn't oh, nothing wow. that's that's pretty significant don't like that number yeah yeah but i mean this is this is part of that like tension in in fascism right like that whole like we want to move forward but we also want to look backwards and and this was seen as like a synthesis where it's like well we can look at our you know strong germanic roots we have warrior blood blah 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 whatever um while still using those uh tropes to you know like as as, as another vector um for nazi ideology so all of this like racial superiority stuff gets this this uh spiritual uh inroad into people's lives then yeah i mean the the relationship that uh some nazi leaders have with various like occult or pagan 
faith elements, like their own personal beliefs, is is fairly well documented. Um, the the DAP, like the the German Workers Party, the the forerunner to the Nazi Party, was actually sponsored by a movement. I think it's pronounced Thule, uh, the Thule movement, um, which was a sort of mystic occult type organization. And a bunch of early Nazi leaders have very strong like uh, occult. Um, ties and i mean this sometimes is held up as like ooh nazis they're weirdos or whatever but like also remember i I don't know if either of you ever listened to it but like i did an episode on uh occultism in like the victorian era right and some of the ways that uh world war one kind of brought about a revival of of mystic uh or occult elements into society where like a lot of people dealing with like the trauma of World War One turned to some esoteric beliefs uh, as sort of a, I guess, comforting element in their lives as like an alternative in much the same way that all of these different political movements would look for alternatives to the things that had caused World War One. right? This is on a much more personal, much more like spiritual level. So that's not like all that weird or like unusual necessarily in in European society, but it tends to like because they're Nazis, get held up as like, ooh, this is crazy. It's probably not well served to look at it that way. And then, yeah, Nazi uh, relationships with Christianity is is complicated. On one hand, there's like a very strong, like, Germany is a Christian nation type vibes that they're trying to like uphold as part of their traditional stuff. And Protestantism, like a like a direct link to uh, Martin Luther, is is kind of striven for. But at the same time, you know, when you actually like read some of the Bible stuff about you know loving your neighbor and whatnot, kind of clashes pretty hard with Nazi beliefs, uh, and that's a bit of a problem for them, uh, you know, philosophically. So the way that this is dealt with generally is this new movement known as positive Christianity, which um, sounds great, right? Like it's Christianity, but it's positive. Uh, It's (laughs) essentially trying to Nazify Christianity as much as possible. Um, Oh, good. Yeah. So like Jesus is presented as Aryan and the Old Testament is thrown out because it's Jewish and... Like, yeah, it's it's pretty gnarly stuff. Um, there's a lot of speculation in terms of like where the Nazis would want to go with religion in a, you know, post-war uh, fascist state. But again, like we talked about earlier, we just don't have any in- uh, evidence of what that would look like. A lot of the speculation, though, is that they would want to sort of do away with Christianity altogether. I know Goebbels especially was kind of talking about wanting to replace Christianity with like kind of a cult of uh, Nazi leadership. But, you know, Hitler wasn't really interested in being a religious figure. He mostly just wanted to do the politics part. Yeah, again, it's all a bunch of speculation. But yeah, the, the relationship between uh, the Nazis and Christianity is really fraught. Uh, not not that it wasn't fraught, again, with the uh, the Italian fascists, but they were a little bit more limited in what they could get away with in the short term in terms of like modifying people's uh, religious beliefs. But uh, yeah, that's that's sort of a, a very, very brief overview. 
Next question. My question is about the economy of Nazi Germany. I get that it was based in autarky, but self-contained systems like that uh, don't seem to be very sustainable. So how was Germany able to rebound so quickly after World War I and the Great Depression? Is there an economic style that is usually associated with fascists? That's from Big Dog 2330. Yeah, I mean... There are there are a couple methods that they use to bounce back uh, quickly. Um, I mean, number one, something to keep in mind is that like hourly wage rates didn't really go up uh, in Germany. All that uh, what did go up was working hours. So overall, people were making more money, but they were also working a lot harder. That tended to like inflate the numbers a little bit. But realistically, what they did to pump up the numbers were. Uh, a couple things. Uh, they cut costs by limiting Social Security. Remember, we talked about that a little bit in part three, right? They made a bunch of people uh, ineligible for social safety nets. They also uh, ceased reparations payments that they were obligated to make under uh, the Treaty of Versailles. Mm, yeah, do you remember hearing that? That uh, saved a bunch of money. Can I guess one? Yeah. Asset seizure? Yeah, asset seizure. Yeah, that's a big one. Made a whole yeah. bunch of money off of seizing uh, the the gold and valuables and artwork of uh, uh, Jewish families. Um, a lot of which has not been recovered to this day, which is kind of crazy. Something like five hundred million dollars worth of gold outstanding still. Um, they figured probably buried in caves somewhere. But yeah, asset seizure is a huge one. And then uh, finally, you know, to, to put it bluntly, uh, slave labor. Yeah. We, we talk a lot about uh, the, the death camps for extremely good reasons when it comes to the Nazis. But keep in mind that there are two types of camps. There are the death camps and there are the labor camps. And people did real actual work in the labor camps and they were not paid for it. That saves a lot of money on a grand scale. It's yeah, it's grim stuff, but yep, that is that is a big part of what uh, what helped them out on cutting costs. Then on the other side, increasing employment by essentially limiting eligible workers. So again, we talked about uh, deporting a bunch of people, uh, making certain people ineligible for. Uh, employment, and when I keep saying certain people, I mainly mean uh, Jewish people, but also you know the the list of other people that uh, that the Nazis were discriminating against, right? As well as encouraging uh, women to leave the workforce, we also touched on that briefly. They increased production by kickstarting military spending. Uh, they were not supposed to have a military of any sort. They started building an air force, which. Uh, is a lot of jobs uh, that that spends a lot of money, um, and then they also had a kind of New Deal style uh, public works program that they put in place. You know, that's this is where you get the Autobahn, right? Um, this is where you get Volkswagen um, was a was originally a, a project to make affordable cars for German, you know, everyday citizens. Um, so yeah, that's that's kind of the. That's kind of the main thrust of it. And then in terms of like addressing the limits of autarky, it's addressed through uh, Lebensraum policies, right? Uh, we talked about it. You know, they they didn't have enough uh, iron. Austria had a lot of iron. They they invade Austria. So yeah, that's that's the main thrust of it. That's that's how you get the economy going again very quickly. It's bad. Yeah, just take stuff. Yeah, it's it's theft essentially. Were there any topics you considered doing in this series that you didn't get to? Would you consider doing them in the future? That's from Leah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. There were there were a couple of things that I was originally planning on doing that uh, got dropped for whatever reason. 
uh, Spanish Civil War is the one that keeps coming up um, for mm-hmm. obvious reasons. Yeah, I would do the Spanish Civil War uh, at some time. Um, not next month. Uh, I am <laughs> tired of talking about fascism, guys. I'm really, really done with it. It's uh, it kind of weighs on you a little bit. But yeah, I would I would absolutely do it. It's a really it's a really fascinating topic. Just uh, just give me a few months. Here's an interesting perspective. So, Ethan, you've been at this for three months now. Yeah. Uh, recording this, uh, Adam. How far back was it? How many months back? Like six or eight? Nine. Nine months. I did nine months of podcasts in the last couple days. <laughs> Y'all. I'm a bit sad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it was, uh, that was a lot of unpleasantness in a short period of time. It was fascinating. I, uh, but holy crap. This is, this is such a small thing, but also such a big thing. There are so many books with like really grim covers. I'm looking forward to getting off of my coffee table and back yeah, onto a shelf. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> These books don't have like aesthetically pleasing covers. <laughs> And it'll just be nice to like pack those away, get them out yeah, of my eye line. It, it like it really does weigh on you. Yeah, a little bit. What else? I have a notebook here. Uh, oh yeah, we had. I had considered talking about the revolutions of eighteen forty eight more as like a political crash course, sort of like what fascism one became. I kind of decided it was going to be too much. Uh, off topic like the the amount of benefit it would bring to the to the preparation wouldn't be worth the amount of time we would end up spending on those revolutions um because a lot of what i was looking to present was you know what classical conservatism looked like what uh classical liberalism looked like what socialism looked like in that political uh arena so that one i I may do at some point, but I think it was it was better served by what we ended up with. What else? Oh, yeah. I had considered at one point doing uh, an episode on the Romani. And honestly, I looked into it and I could not find enough readily available stuff to like construct a good history out of. That's disappointing. That would have been a good one. Yeah, I think it yeah, would have been it sounds really fascinating. I think it would have been really good. I think that's it's also, you know, sort of a function of what happens when you have a mostly migrant population that is also heavily discriminated against. There's a, there's a saying and I'm going to get this wrong, but it's something along the lines of uh, until the lions have their own historians, then, you know, uh every history book is going to glorify the hunt. This idea that, you know, you, you need to be able to tell your own stories to some extent to get proper representation. And and maybe I just wasn't able to find that story out there, uh, but I wasn't able to find it in time to really do a proper uh, episode on it, um, unfortunately. So I don't know, maybe maybe someday I'll find enough uh, to, to make something happen there. I'd very much like to, but yeah, it, it just didn't work out. And then the other one is, uh, I, I'd like to, I don't know what this is going to look like, uh, but something that we barely brushed past in this that we could have spent more time on was like the place of psychology in a lot of this stuff and the, uh, the way that society has treated people with mental illness, especially in regards to, you know, some of the, uh, uh, eugenics topics, things like that. That would have just added to the depression. 
Yeah, I, I agree. I think we were getting pretty heavy on that, but like, I, I also think it would be interesting uh, to to look at some of that stuff um, from both like a like a health side of things, how how patients were treated, but also you know from a, a philosophy side of things. You know, there's a lot of stuff about early psychologists, you know, Freud in particular, that that did contribute somewhat to some of these ideas. Again, I, I just ended up on the side of wasn't contributing quite enough. I, I didn't want to make it into a, well, number one, I didn't want to make it into a full year, but number two, I, I tried to keep it to very important things in the background and it just didn't quite make the cut. So yeah, this is the, the final question that I wanted to get to today. Uh, this is the this is my favorite question that I got in. You did a great job highlighting how fascism is fueled by an appeal to group identity. Typically, this appeal is accompanied by a claim of distinction or superiority, Aryan supremacy in Germany, descent from Roman greatness in Italy. During these regimes, was there a notable emphasis on race, specifically whiteness, in the ideology? Thinking about white nationalism in the contemporary context, do you think that whiteness alone is enough to build a fascist regime around? The Italians and the Germans at least had a shared language, history, religion, etc., in addition to a shared race, to build their fascist group identity. And that's from Hesham. This is a great question. Uh, the answer is yes. Yes, whiteness is enough to build a fascist identity around. Absolutely. Um, I think that the construction of the the concept of Aryanness is, if anything, uh, weaker and has has less historical uh, grounding or merit than the place that whiteness as a as an identity or as a, a group marker has played in Western history. Obviously, it would still require a nationality to associate it with, um, you know, it, the Aryanness went along with Germanness, but like as that uh, core group as something to um, uh, make an equivalent to the nation um, by virtue of excluding others, then yes, absolutely sufficient. And I, I think the the easiest way to uh, demonstrate its its uh, potential for that is to. Uh, look at an organization like the Klan, which, you know, I, I tried to stay away from like the proto-fascist type uh, movements as much as possible. A lot of people like to, you know, touch on Napoleon III's police state and, and you know, repression of journalism and things like that. Uh, it, I, I don't find it super useful, but I mean, when you look at the Klan, you know, you're seeing violence that goes alongside, uh, you know, runs parallel to state apparatus. You're looking at specifically, uh, you know, political violence. So especially like the first iteration of the Klan uh, in the 1860s, 1870s, you're looking at uh, violence used to discourage uh, black politicians. The uh, building of like an American identity as being predicated on being white and being Christian and being Protestant Christian, um, you know, the second clan in the 20s being anti-communist. There's there's a lot of stuff that's happening there that uh, I, I think shows that, you know, not only can that be a group identity that uh, a, a, a right wing nationalist movement can be built around, but that it's, it's something that's been uh, effectively used in the past. So I, I really don't see any reason that it couldn't be used in the future. So yeah, that's that's my answer. Is 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 yeah, yeah, hundred percent yes. Anything else you guys want to add to that, or we gonna call it there? I'm just 
I'm just soaking in all this, man. It's a lot. Yeah, it's a lot. I agree. It's important to talk about, though. You're not wrong. In fact, you are explicitly correct, but yeah, it is very important. And yet, still important to remember, like, be good to yourself. You don't have to try and tackle this all at once. Yeah, for sure. No, but I, I mean, I, I I don't know. I, I this, this show tries to... Like I try to, I tr- I draw a very hard line uh, between history and current events for for I think very obvious reasons, but uh, at the same time, I, I think that part of the benefit of looking at stuff like this, uh, whether you want to call it explicitly fascism or whether you want to look at a wider umbrella of of ultranationalism. Um, you know, I, I think part of what goes into this as a, a utility or as a, a benefit is an aspect of awareness of your surroundings, uh, of your environment. And I, I think that, at least to me, it's it's fairly obvious that this is the spirit in which uh, Hashem is, is asking that question. And I, I think he yeah, deserves a... for sure. I think they deserve a, a, a straight answer on that. So, um, yeah, that's, that's why I decided to include this one. Generally, I, I try to keep away from that stuff but yeah yeah it's uh it is it is as likely if not more likely than than many other things out there especially in the west uh there's a there's a long history of of white identity being used for oppression of all sorts i i don't see why it couldn't be set up as that sort of uh identity again um to answer uh one of the questions that was buried in there was uh whether or not either Germany or Italy put a, a specific emphasis on whiteness as race. Not really. I mean, for for Germany, I suppose Aryanness was whiteness. Um, it, it's just, you know, we, we talked about this in scientific racism somewhat, right? Like, you've got people who are dividing everybody up into two groups, and you've got people who are dividing everybody up into 30 groups, and you've got everything in between, right? Like, all of a sudden we're, we're getting out the calipers and we're measuring skulls or we're, you know, like it's, it's all this, it's all this nonsense that at the end of the day has got very, like it doesn't have good foothold in the biology and is made up by society to divide us. That doesn't make it not real. You know, the one I keep going back to is money, right? Like we made up money too. It doesn't mean that you can't be broke. It has an extremely real impact on people's lives, but in terms of like where the bars get set, yeah, I mean, you you can call it different things, right? Ultimately, what you're looking at is dividing people on biological characteristics and um, things that they can't really change about themselves because it's literally physically manifestly who they are. You know, if you want to call it different things, that's that's fine, and the Nazis called it slightly different things, but you're still kind of doing the same thing at the end of the day. So anyways, that's, uh, that's my piece on that. Sorry to end on that note, but I, I mean, ultimately I think that's what the, in, in a nutshell, that's what the series is about, right? Is, is that forward looking? Uh, I want everyone to be a little bit better armed on some of these ideas, uh, just through familiarity. So, uh, Unless either of you have anything else you want to mention, I think we can leave it there. No, it sounds like a good spot to me. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Good enough. Well, next month we'll be back with um, probably something a lot longer in the past. I haven't decided what exactly yet, but 
we're, we're going to be a lot less cozy with it, whatever it is. Uh, it'll be a little bit more fun, I promise. Um, thanks to everybody for sticking through this whole series with me. Thanks to both of you for coming on today and helping me uh, roll through some of these questions. Yeah, no problem. Yeah. All right. And uh, until next time. <laughs>